Jesus, we thank you that you are here with us this morning. Thank you for this reminder that it's not about us. Amen. That ultimately it is all about you. Amen. And as a church, as we seek to make passionate followers of Jesus Christ, it's just good to be reminded of why we're here, who you are, what you've made us, and what we are to be in our daily conduct. So be glorified through the preaching of your word this morning. Prepare our hearts to receive whatever it is that you have decreed we should learn this morning. Speak through me to bring about your glory. Amen. Take your seats. Get your Bibles out. Well, you don't need your Bibles out right now because we're going to be going through. Just get them out and ready, your phone or whatever you want to call it. So we're going to go through a real quick recap of what I did two weeks ago. Okay, to remind everybody about who you are. Who are you? I said in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul listed for us what we call positional truths. Things that God has done for us, and here is a list of these things. Remember these? Taken straight from the first chapter of Ephesians, first three chapters. Um, how he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. Predestined us for adoption to himself. Made us to the praise of his glory. Given us grace, redemption, and forgiveness made known to us the mystery of his will, that is, that Jew and Gentile be one body in one church. He was given us an inheritance that was pre-planned before the world began. He sealed our salvation by giving us the Holy Spirit, ensuring our inheritance. He's given us resurrection power. He's made us alive from the dead. He's taken us who are far away, and drawn us near. He's made us one new man in himself. He's given to us the great mystery of the truth of the gospel, which is the church. And knowing these truths are so important that Paul prays a prayer in Ephesians 1, 18 to 21. You can just listen. I don't think I put it up here, did I? No. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And that's that deep, experiential knowledge. It's not intellectual knowledge. It's not an intellectual agreement to a set of beliefs. It is an experiential knowledge so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he wants us to know these three things. These three truths, not known just intellectually, but especially experientially, the hope of Christ's calling. The riches 
of the glory of Christ's inheritance. He wants you to know how wealthy you are, okay? And what is the hope of his calling? Is that when he comes again, that he will praise you, glorify you, honor you for your faithful service. He wants you to know resurrection power. I said, all that God has given us means that we are different from the world. And I said, to illustrate my point, um, the first three chapters of Ephesians describes the specifications of a believer, your specs, we just went over. It's similar to the specs of a car. I said, this is what an unbeliever looks like right here. Remember that? The Ford Fiesta. Sadly, Someone is proud to own a Ford Fiesta. That was Keith Larson, right? So uh, there's a, this is the unbeliever right here, and then you have an even worse unbeliever. It's the Keith Larson unbeliever, okay? <laughs> the worst kind of believer ever. Look at that. He sent me this picture. That's a 19, is it 1979 to 83? Is that what it is? Ford Fiesta. This baby has 45 to 83 horsepower. I can walk faster than that. <laughs> That's what he drove around in back in the Stone Ages, right, Keith? Look at that thing. This looks a lot better than that one, doesn't it? I remember seeing those, unfortunately. I just dated myself, but yes. Okay. Look at that. And they, they said on the little thing you sent me that it was such a, 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 a good-selling car for them in, in terms of fuel economy and everything and so on and so forth. But just so you know, there's an unbeliever, and there's the worst kind of unbeliever, and it's the Keith Larson unbeliever. That's the key point of this, right? If you don't get anything from this sermon, get that, right? But I said, here is the believer, though. Okay, and I got corrected, and my kids were right. That's not a GT. That's a Shelby. It's more powerful. That's the key, okay? Don't be this. <laughs> be this, all right? This is who you are as a Christ, all the, in Christ. That's, so I said, how are believers different from unbelievers? Well, so just like the Ford Mustang you see, it's got what? It's a better quality interior, sturdier tires, heavy-duty brakes, enhanced suspension, a more powerful engine than a Ford Fiesta. Believers, you have more riches and resources, including more power than unbelievers, to live a kingdom life to be different. Unfortunately, I said, even though there are believers like a Ford Mustang Shelby, you'll live like a Ford Fiesta. There's really no difference in the lifestyles of believers and unbelievers. That's why Paul ch closes the first three chapters of Ephesians with a prayer. Let's listen to this. It says, for this reason... I bow my knees before the Father. So everything that he has listed about who you are in Christ, he says, I am praying this, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God, and not to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, 
according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So in other words, the, the purpose of this prayer is to turn you from this. This is you before Christ. This is you when you came to Christ. That's not good enough, though. You need to be this. It's this. This is a picture of a Ford Mustang shell being driven. It's moving. Okay? So the way to get the Ford Mustang to utilize all its powerful capabilities, you have to sit in the front seat, put the key in the ignition, and turn it on. And the key to living the Christian life, the Spirit-filled life, is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, God gives us two things. First of all, the desire to live like Christ and the power or the ability to actually live the Christian life as he intended it to be lived. God has made it possible for us to capitalize on all the resources in Christ by giving us his Holy Spirit, a part of him. And the Holy Spirit guides us through that prayer that I just read to you. It's a progressive steps, and here they are, I said. The first thing is the strengthening of the inner man. It's what we call the filling, or the empowerment, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And historically, you look back in, in history and in your life, you should have been taught that. The first disciples were not told to go into the world until they had received the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, they were filled and empowered, and they changed the world. So this is an experience that is outside of when you first come to Christ. It is a, a surrendering, a, a depending, a deeper, a second experience. And third, fourth, fifth, on and on and on as you walk with God. Once that happens, then you go to the next one so that Christ can settle down and be at home in our lives, so that Christ can dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ is comfortable living within you. That's the desire that God gives you through the power of the Holy Spirit. You desire for him to be Lord over every area of your life. Jesus is never, ever your Savior unless he's your Lord. The two go hand in hand. And we've done a great disservice to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and left out the phrase, and Lord. He didn't come to save you, and that was it. He came to save to rule you and live his life through you, okay? And so he wants to be comfortable in your life. That's the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's a desire. It's like you desire to surrender every area of your life. You find that this desire is now there that you never had before. Well, that's God at work within you. You've been born again. It's spirit forming you into uh, a more perfect image of Jesus Christ. Once you do that... Guess what? Since God is love, it says that you are, so that you are rooted and grounded in love. Your foundation, the way you live your life, is out of a foundation of love. The world will know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ by what? Our love. God is love. If you, he who loves me and has my commands and obeys him, that's the one who loves God. So you he begins to live his life and you start to love people. Then 
as that continues, you can be filled with this incomprehensible love, this love of God. In other words, what it means is this. When the world persecutes you, you're hurt, you're, you're offended, you don't retaliate. You don't seek vengeance. What do you do? You bless. You pray for them. You're starting to act like a child of God. Does that make sense to you? No, it does not in our fallen state. But that's how God is, and that's how we are to be. That's that incomprehensible, it doesn't make any sense to me beyond my understanding love, but that's the, the life that I'm now beginning to live. Okay? Then you're filled with all the fullness of God. I don't even know how to describe that, to be honest with you. God is filling your life. Then the next thing happens. God will do through you the unimaginable. Through the power of the Holy Spirit at work within you, this broken vessel, God is now freely able to move his life and live his life through you, and he can demonstrate his resurrection power, which means technically you can do what Jesus did, which is what he said you should do. Greater works than mine, he said you'll do. Cast out demons, for example. Heal the sick. Even raise the dead. Just some examples. But also, as we're going to see here, is to live a completely different life that will be so attractive to a lost and dying world. So God has given us everything we need. And this is a series of progression of steps here. These things right here. This happens first, then this, then this, then this, and then this, then this. We'll say, well, okay, I've, I got here, but I'm really not living a life of love. Well, you know what that probably means? What area of your life have you not surrendered to him as your Lord? And so, you know, not many people go through this process, but that's his prayer, that a lot of all God's done for you, get to that point. Because he says here then that this is what I want you to do. And by the way, having given us everything we need to live the Christian life, the question is, well, how are we to live? And that's Ephesians chapters four through six. It starts, I said, a couple weeks ago with living a life worthy of our calling. It's called a walk of humility or the lowly walk. You can see the verse up there. Everyone turn to Ephesians four. because This is where we're gonna be spending our time. Therefore, in other words, everything that Paul has laid out in the first three chapters, the two prayers, all the specifications of you as a believer, I'm summing it up here and say, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, implore, exhort, encourage you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And it begins with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. I said the word worthy there, I don't know if you remember this or not, it's the word balance. Equalizing or balancing the scales. So what Paul is saying here is that your lifestyle, your daily conduct, should be identical or equalized with who you are in Christ. There should be a perfect balance between who you are and how you live. That's the worthy walk. And how does the worthy walk begin? With humility. The phrase, with all humility, do you remember what that means? Total humility. 
And I said, we, we looked at our model for humility. It was Jesus Christ, and it is Jesus Christ. And we are to walk, or our daily conduct, what the word walk means, we are to walk as he walked. First John 2, 6 says, the one who abides in Jesus Christ ought himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus Christ walked. So the walk that he walked, we are to walk. We have the same ability to live the same life Jesus lived. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Because that's what the text says. And if your experience is not the same as Jesus, it's not God's fault. Because he's given you everything, right? Well, this is how he walked, his daily conduct. That is Jesus Christ. He did nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, he regarded one another as more important than himself. And Paul said, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not re- regard, he called with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man again, he humbled himself but become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It's Philippians 2, 3, and 8. So here's Jesus Christ in the exalted position as God. He humbles himself and became a man, and he walked a worthy life or a balanced life. And I said that this introduces a very crucial concept of humility, and that is selflessness. I said that this, that total humility is the absence of self. That's what it means. Total humility, it's the elimination of the absence of self. That's the first thing. So after describing all that God has done for us in the first three chapters of Ephesians, the very first thing Paul instructs us to do is to raise the dead, to cast out demons, to speak prophetically, Is that what the text says? You have all this power, what does he tell you to do? Total humility, with all humility. That's the very first thing he tells you to do. Humble yourself. It's nothing about any miraculous gifts or even using your gifts. It is to walk in total humility. It is the elimination the absence of self. This is why pop psychology Christianity is so lethal. I always found it funny to go into a Christian bookstore, which I don't go into anymore, and they have a self-help section. Give me a break. You are to die to self. Eliminate self. Kill self. Okay? Eliminate selfishness. That's the very first thing. All the power, everything I've given you, the very first thing I want you to do is to eliminate selfishness. Now think about that for a moment. Is that what you were taught when you first believed? Were you taught that the other remaining characteristics 
should be evident daily in every believer. Gentleness, patience, tolerant love, and unity. You probably weren't taught those things. I wasn't. My guess is that for followers of Jesus Christ, the Christian walk really means you go to church, you put money in the offering, you occasionally read your Bible and pray, you don't swear or drink or you don't commit a crime. That is all externally focused behavior. Okay? It's a hypocritical, legalistic, false worship. The biblical issue is not what we do apart from what we are. It is what we are that results in what we do. When you really know who you are in Christ, it is to have a profound effect on your life. Now folks, that includes how you respond to the inevitability of offense. If I walk in total humility, then I think of myself and my desires as unimportant. They don't matter. And I put all my thoughts and energies into putting the interests of others first. That's Philippians 2, 3 through 8. That's what Jesus Christ did. And if I do that, I don't have the time or the energy to be offended. So the person who walks in total humility, they are almost impossible to offend. Because there's nothing there to offend. Because where is self? It's absent. It's gone. Now in order to give you another perspective of Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, look at the verses in the King James Version. Did I put this up here or not? Yes, I did. Look at this of Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 in the King James Version. It gives you a little bit of different flavor for what we're talking about here. I therefore, the prayers of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation, the calling with where you call. Now watch, with all lowliness. Lowliness seems to me to be a little bit harsher than humility. Meekness, which we'll talk about this morning, or gentleness. Patience, it means long-suffering, and we don't like that, especially when I'm behind the wheel of a car. Forbearing one another in love. Endeavoring to keep the union of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see all that? So let's talk about meekness or gentleness. It is what we call, as Rodney talked about, it's power under control. But we're going to go a little bit deeper than that this morning. Because I've been absolutely blown away by what I learned we're going to begin by defining gentleness from meekness. If you want to take notes, now would be the time to take notes because this has the possibility of being a life-changing sermon here. If I were to ask you what is gentleness or meekness, I'm sure I would get, and I'm sure I would get a number of, of definitions. But dictionary.com, for example, d- describes meekness as docile, overly compliant, or spiritless, yielding, or tame. Merriam-Webster defines it as mild, deficient in courage, submissive, and weak. Now these modern day definitions of meekness, they hold an immeasurably different definition than what the Bible teaches. Now the Greek word, here we go, for meekness implies a, look at this, a total lack of self-pride. 
to the point of a lack of self-concern. I think the silence in this room right now speaks enough for itself. There's another form of that word protest is pros, which is expressed as a meekness, as a decided strength of disciplined calmness. So we see strength attached to meekness. In other words, it's a choice. The Old Testament word versus someone who is afflicted or bearing a heavy burden. It's largely an explanation about the circumstances, the Hebrew word here in the Old Testament, that someone is willing to endure. And so it should start to become clear that the virtue of meekness refers to those who are willing to share and sacrifice on behalf of others. Okay? And as I explain meekness, and you think of humility and total humility and the elimination of self, you'll see how these two are connected and how the meek person is, again, also almost impossible to offend. Now, it also means to be, in, in addition to all those definitions, it's, you're gentle-hearted, you're just kind of mild. It's the opposite of, opposite of vengeance or retaliation. It is not a competitive person. It's a quiet, willing submission to God and others without the retaliation fueled by self-assertion. Why is there no self? It's gone. See? It's gone. But there's not the self-assertion that is characterized by the unbelieving man. So it is, in essence, to summarize it all, it is selfless. That's what meekness means. You're selfless. It's a choice to be strong, a decided strength to be meek. It's willing to bear a burden. It's the opposite of vengeance. It's a quiet, willing submission to God and others. Now, I want you to think of David. Remember, we went through, David in the Bible went through a story a couple weeks ago. He was willing to bear the burden of living every day on the run from Saul for years as he quietly trusted God to install him as king in God's timing rather than take matters in his own hand, which would have been vengeance. So see, a meek person trusts God to bring about justice if God so chooses in this life. I'd like for you to think of meekness as two examples. Think of it as a gentle breeze. Because that's another way it's described in, in, in history and in the Bible. A gentle breeze that calmly passes by the warm hillside and it cools the people. You ever been in a hot situation you feel a gentle, cool breeze? It's also used to speak of a broken lion who is now tame so that the lion's power can be channeled for the purposes of its master. Meekness is, or gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit produced by the Holy Spirit in a dependent and surrendered believer. But it is characteristic most of all of Jesus Christ. Remember it said this, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am what? 
gentle and humble, meek and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. So first of all, you have humility, and that's self-emptying. And by self-emptying, I mean I'm not interested in my own causes, my own successes, my own gain, or my own reputation. I have stripped myself of myself. And when that happens, meekness is always the byproduct. Now, why is it always a byproduct? Because it is a result of a broken will before God. You can never have pride and meekness. They're incompatible. You only have humility and then meekness. Now, meekness is a result of a broken will before God. It's always a byproduct of humility. But I want you to hear me clearly. It is not the destruction of the lion. Rather, it's the taming of the lion. I mean, it's one thing if I was in Africa, I've seen you know, lions running around and so on, but to see a powerful lion running free, but it's a whole other ball game to see a powerful lion under the control of a lion tamer at the circus. See, both lions have the same power, right? But the tame lion is under the control of its master. And so it is with meekness. Now for us, it means that no longer does a lion in you and I seek its own will. There is no will. Why is there no will? There's no self. Now earlier I gave you the definition of meekness as a gentle breeze, right? Think of a wind blowing in a hurricane. What's the purpose of that wind? It has no purpose other than to what? To destroy, right? But when it blows as a quiet breeze, it catches the windmill, the windmill pumps the water that causes the crops to grow, that feeds humanity. So in summary, gentleness or meekness is power under control, and when power is under control, it is useful. Now, within the heart of every believer, there is a lion. Within you is Christ. Christ is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that lion in you and in me has every right to roar, but only under the direction of the one who rules its will. That is our master, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So God gives you that power. Remember that? It's the strengthening of the inner man. Then the next thing he says is, I've got to tame that will. And that's when you make him Lord. Then you're used, begin to be useful to him. So we see that gentleness, meekness, it's not cowardice. It's not timidity. Meek people get angry. Scriptures are clear. Be angry and yet do not sin. The verse tells us, Ephesians 4.26, the verse I just quoted, there's a certain kind of anger that's not sin. Of course, it's called what? Righteous anger. It's the right kind of anger for the right reason. Let me elaborate further. Meekness 
is when I take the line in me, I submit it to God, so it only gets angry about that which offends God. You see that? Not me. I don't get angry about me. The lion roars in defense of God, not in defense of me. So if somebody wants to offend me, that's all right. There's no retaliation because I'm not interested in defending myself. Because where is self? If I'm walking in total humility, it's gone. And so I want you to understand that meekness is that quiet spirit that is void of self, it's non-retaliating. But when God is dishonored, that same spirit roars and it exercises its power in righteous anger. See, it reacts when it ought to react at the right time for the right reasons and for the right length of time. Let me give you some biblical examples. Peter wrote this about Jesus. I think, did I put this up there or not? Yeah. It says, for you've been called for this purpose. So this is you and I. What purpose is that? Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So in other words, we don't want to hear this, but you've been called to suffer. You've been called to suffer. And while you're suffering, you're going to be reviled. And Jesus Christ, while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he trusted God. See, Jesus didn't retaliate or defend himself. You see that? Now read this verse right here. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of them from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Had to do this twice, by the way. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market. So I ask you, is this the same Jesus? It is. See, when Jesus was dishonored, he did not defend himself. But when his father was dishonored, the lion roared. That is power under control. You see that? Anger for the right reason, for the right time, for the right length of time. Let me give you another example. In the garden, the, the night before his, his crucifixion, the soldiers came to capture Jesus. One of his disciples defends Jesus and cuts the ear off a servant. Remember that story? What was Jesus' response? This is in Matthew 26, 52 and 53. He says, put your sword back in its place. I think it was Peter who cut off the, the servant's ear. Jesus said to him, and he heals the ear, by the way, which is totally cool. Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. But look at verse 53. Do you think I cannot call my father 
And he at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Now, just to give you some perspective here, and I'm going to speak conservatively, 12 legions of angels was between 75 and 100,000 angels. Do you want to know how powerful that is? In the Old Testament, one angel slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. One angel could easily turn back Russia and Ukraine. Easily. But Jesus would not defend himself. That is meekness. You see, when his father's temple was being defiled, Jesus made a whip and he cleared out all the robbers. But when his own temple was being defiled on the cross, nails driven through his wrists, his body dripping with blood, sweat, and the spit of all of his enemies all over his body, all he says is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That is meekness. It is power under control. Total selflessness, total power under control. So meekness will take a whip and defend God against those who desecrate his name, but it will not as much lift its own finger for vengeance against that which comes to itself. Does that make sense to you? No. Does it? Because your first reaction is to defend yourself. Your first reaction is to hit the horn when somebody cuts you off at the intersection. Why why didn't Jesus respond differently on the cross? Because what happened to him, to self, doesn't matter. What happens to us doesn't matter. I told you, you're nothing. Get to that point. You're nothing. Your interests, your desires, in the grand scheme of things, they don't really matter. When you, under the power of the Holy Spirit, and by the way, I I go back to that again, total humility and the meekness that I'm describing, which is completely biblical, and I'm giving you a fraction of what the Bible teaches on meekness, that is, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It is only produced by the Holy Spirit. It is not something that we can produce. Okay? And it comes through surrender. Total surrender and total dependence upon the Holy Spirit as he fills and empowers you. But when you, under the power of the Holy Spirit, are truly walking the worthy walk, you see, this person can't be offended. Meekness cannot be offended because there's nothing to defend because we're nothing. Now, you might be tempted to think, well, Pastor, those examples that you just shared from the life of Jesus, I mean, that's his life. He lived a perfect life. And no matter how hard I try, I'll never be able to live up to his standards. And to that, I say, yes. Let's look at another example from someone else. Let's look at Moses, one of the Bible's biggest failures. By all accounts, Moses was a deeply flawed man. He was rash and impulsive, prone to fits of anger his whole life. He often lacked self-control. He was a poor communicator, and he was a murderer. That's his resume. He's a stuttering, 
murdering, full of anger, not you know, totally lacking self-control individual. That's his resume before God as he applied to be their, their Messiah, their deliverer. Now his sister Miriam and Aaron were offended by Moses because of their pride. And they proclaimed themselves as equal to Moses. And the historical record of this story in Numbers chapter 12 lists no mention of Moses defending himself. Well, why? Well, Numbers 12.3 tells us. He was meek. Listen to this. Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. If you understand what meekness is, which you should now, you understand now why Moses would not defend himself. See, it took God 80 years to break Moses. Before the lion in Moses, which he had a temper, he had the strength, could be under the control of God to do his will. And even though Moses was meek, he was also fearless. Remember, in his own strength, he tried to be the savior of the Hebrews. He killed that Egyptian for beating a Hebrew slave. He struck him down and killed him in Exodus 2. And Moses was so furious at what was happening to his brothers, he took a life. So Moses was fearless at that time, but he wasn't meek. See, his power was not under control. But we also know when the power was under control, he was very, very bold. In the fifth chapter of Exodus, after he's been refined by God by spending 40 years in the wilderness, remember this life of Moses? The first 40 years, it's it's self. The next 40 years, wandering in the desert, it's the elimination of self. The final 40 years, he's used by God. This broken man in the hands of God is used by God, and God has a message for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the world. Moses walks right into the presence of Pharaoh, stares him in the face, looks him straight in the eye, and says what? Let my people go. Moses wasn't afraid to face Pharaoh. In fact, He didn't ask, did he? Let my people go as a command. He commands the most powerful man in the world. So we see in Moses, meekness as godly, fearlessness and godly boldness. But Moses was also filled with righteous anger. In Exodus 32, Moses finds the people of Israel in adultery. And what's his response? As he's coming down from the mountain near the camp and he saw the golden calf... And the dancing of Moses' anger burned. He threw the tablets, the Ten Commandments, from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. To an absolute fury, he smashes the law of God and rebukes the people. That, folks, is biblical meekness. Godly fearlessness, godly boldness, and godly righteous anger. It is combative, it is confrontational when it needs to be. So contrary to the world's view of meekness, meekness is not weakness or timid cowardice. It is power under the control of the master. It's the line inside of us roaring for the right reason 
the right time for the right length of time. I'm going to close with this. Proverbs 25, 28 says this, Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. The story it goes, dates back to the, the 1800s of a civil war. After the civil war, there lived in the city of Charleston, South Carolina, uh, an, the old colonel, as he was known. And uh, during the civil war, this colonel was famed for his control over others. Those under his command seemed to delight in instantly and immediately obeying his every order. It made him a great commander and leader in that regard. They responded by instinct into his voice when he commanded them. Without even thinking, they obeyed. He commanded that kind of authority over the soldiers. But after the war, he became a hard drinker. And his life was one of of just a blur of drunkenness. But one day in Charleston, uh, a race riot broke out. It was so bad that the local authorities could not control the crowds. Nobody obeyed their voice. And so in the midst of frustration, one of them went to the local tavern, got the old drunk colonel. <laughs> they put him on his old uniform, they mounted him on a horse and brought him downtown. He went to the midst of the crowd, right in the very middle, and this old colonel began to shout orders to cease and desist all hostility. And what happened? Well, immediately, instantly, the crowds who recognized that voice of authority and the command of their old colonel they came to order. All the rioting stopped, and quietly the old colonel rode off. But they found him later, dead drunk in a saloon. See, he was a success at controlling others, but he could not control himself. And that's what road rage is, really, a failure to control yourself. You have all this power, right? It's not under the control of the master. So, in light of offense, you want to be, live a, an offense-free life? And this is the very first thing you should have focused on when you came to Christ. Walk with total humility and in gentleness or in meekness. Eliminate self Trust God, don't retaliate, and respond in love. See, because the meek person can take it. See, we're going to see that next week. Bearing with one another in love, you can take it. You can take that burden of others because you're not concerned with self, because self is gone. If you've ever met someone like that, they are almost impossible to offend. And so in the power of the Holy Spirit, that is how you live an offense-free life, with all humility and meekness. And so I didn't know what to do for the application point. I mean, what do I do with something like this? I thought, okay, I'm not doing this for any other reason other than this. listen to this sermon again. I could tell you to, to study meekness, and I know that you probably wouldn't do that. These are messages we need to hear over and over and over again. Your daily conduct should be one of of total humility and of meekness. 
that power that you have within you under the control of the will of your master. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning. We were reminded that you know, it is, we are all called to walk in humility and in gentleness. And we don't always do that. I pray that every one of us here would moment by moment be surrendered to and dependent upon the filling, the empowering, the leading of the Holy Spirit to live this kind of life. We already have everything we need. May we choose to be meek, to be humble. In Jesus' name, amen. By the way, in a side note, this should, if when you start to understand what the Bible teaches about like humility and meekness, what does it have to do with rioting, and protests, and demanding your rights? Everything about that? If we gave deference to others, put the interests of others first, the world would be a totally different place, would it not? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close with the song.